Welcome to Modern Immortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Kimberly Paul. She is currently in graduate school for social work at the University of Kentucky. She worked with Lower Cape Fear Hospice in Wilmington, North Carolina for over 17 years. This led her to loading up an RV and traveling the country to talk with people and communities about the dying stage of life. Kimberly's expertise with hospice and watching the system take away resources for those in need fed a frustration that she has found herself in graduate school with the hopes of ultimately writing and changing healthcare policy in America. Welcome, Kimberly. Thanks for being here. Why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself? I am. Um, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina, but uh, I came via New York City, um, born and raised in Virginia. And um, the entertainment industry brought me down, was really interested in working with a show called Dawson's Creek that was filming in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I came down and they were on sabbatical and I thought I would just get comfortable. And I just had a friend pass away with cancer at the age of 30. And so I wanted to uh, volunteer with Hospice, and which is pro- properly uh, pronounced hospice. But that's how green I was when it came to healthcare, um, and I ended up just getting a a part time position with them, um, becoming a, a a volunteer program manager, thinking that I would always go back to uh, television and film. And what occurred is within two years, I was promoted to VP of communications and what kept me there even that long was I was really telling true authentic stories. Um, and it just happened to be at the bedside of the dying. So I ended up staying with that organization and never really returning to television. And I stayed with them for about 17 years. Um, it was a local nonprofit, still nonprofit hospice here in Wellington, North Carolina. Um, you know, after 17 years, I, just saw what uh, Congress and the field that I really fell in love with um, started really falling apart. And um, I saw hospice go from, you know, really trying to meet the patient and family where they are um, to being forced to um, really ask patients and families to convert and do things based on a reimbursement stream. Mm-hmm. And I, I was not happy with that. And, and I thought one of the best ways I could do is really start talking and creating some materials to inspire people to reclaim their health care. Um, and so I left after 17 years, um, wrote a book and started a podcast called Death by Design. And Really, it's from New York best-selling authors um, who had a personal experience with dying. Um, were guests on my podcast to physicians and palliative care physicians to normal day people who just felt abandoned by the healthcare um, system that they found themselves in, and hopefully through you know an education, a free education, I could help prepare people to begin the conversation a lot sooner than what was happening. I, it, to me, 
um, healthcare and end of life are is like a a intersection, a four way intersection that has no stop signs, and the physicians are losing, the patient is absolutely losing, the caregivers losing, and there's there's just this overwhelming emotional decision making when because people haven't talked about it. Right. I don't. A, a lot of people want to tend to blame physicians for this. And I, I believe that that's not the whole story. Um, you know, people like, well, the physician didn't tell me my mom was dying. And I was like, well, but you saw this and this, did you ask the physician, you know, is this curable? Is this, is she going to die from this? And I, I believe, you know, when no one is asking and having re real conversations, it becomes like that intersection with no stop signs and they become um, very sick and wind up in the ICU. And for the first time, someone's told, well, your mom's dying and she's been dying for about three years. Right. But it, it becomes an increase with um, in, in healthcare, especially with ICU, the physicians who, especially the palliative physicians and, and the physicians who, who are like, man, I'm, I'm really doing more damage to this person because I'm trying to keep them alive because the family's not ready. And, right. you know, I've seen physicians go around the corner and just cry. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm increasing the patient's suffering and that's not what I want to do. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, after I left, I, I just thought, dog, you know, how do I, really get to the heart of the person who is ultimately this, the decision maker. And I do believe us in the healthcare field need to be better at having hard conversations. I do, but I absolutely do think the patient and the caregiver are, are in the driver's seat. And I believe that for them to reclaim, they have to know the system. And I think that's what's confusing is that when someone we love gets sick and we are forced into a system that speaks another whole language that we don't understand, it becomes very complex and complicated. And so all my mission is, is really how do I get people to talk about this thing called life, that it's going to end one day? And the more I talk about it and feel like that my life could end today, mm -hmm. I live a little, I live more boldly. So, because I know this, I'm not going to be here. Um, I, I could get killed today or I could live until I'm 92. Um, but it's, it's going to end one day. And, and so why not take the steps to do it my way? Um, and I think once I did my advanced care planning, and I ended up renting out my house in Wilmington and buying an RV and my German Shepherd and I, I was like, you know what, maybe I should go state to state and, and really tell people what, what, what is important. It's not money. It's not, it's, it's relationships, it's connection. And, and how can I build connection with individuals and tell them the stories that I've seen with hospice patients who aren't ready to die and are on hospice and don't realize they're dying. And, and we're not having this conversations. And even in hospice care, I mean, I, if we, I surveyed before I left about seven years ago, I surveyed the staff and 
only 30% of those even working in the end of life fields have only prepared for end of life and they see it every day. Mm. And so it's, it's, I don't know why we have this, this, I guess this destination thinking that, that, you know, we always are planning, but we don't really look ahead and plan for the end um, and plan for sickness. And, and I'm not saying that planning is going to change anything that's going to happen. Um, but planning, at least there's been some thoughtful process, some thoughtful consideration. Um, I think healthcare, the healthcare power of attorney is probably one of the most important forms. If you cannot speak to yourself for yourself, finding someone that's going to speak not for you, but as you, right. um, and that's, it's hard. And so once um, I was on tour, my whole goal was to go to 49, drive to 49 states. We did make it to 46 and COVID stopped us. And I spent a year in Denver consulting with for-profit hospices, which I want to put sometimes, um, I guess for-profit hospices, they don't uh, mirror my value system, um, you know, and so I, I wanted to experience what was it like to work for a for-profit because I've always worked for a community-based or nonprofit. And I wanted to see, you know, is it better? Is it, is it, um, what's the difference? And I got an eye opening of just my experience was the care was really, really bad. Let me, um, let me stop one, you for a minute and just, sure. um, I just want to jump back to, that initial experience. So when your friend died of cancer, were you also mm -hmm. around the age of 30? Yeah, I was. I was 28, a couple of years younger. Okay. And was that your first real experience or encounter with mortality? Or did you have earlier experiences that you remember? Yeah, I had my great grandmother and my grandparents. But I think because Rob was 30, and he was diagnosed with skin cancer, um, and an 18 month time frame, um, within an 18 month time frame, he had died. And so I was not, I've never experienced someone that, that I was close to that at that young age, uh, died because of skin cancer. One of the most curable cancers out there. Um, but you know, it was on his back. Um, he just got into the FBI and, and he, within 18 months, um, he was, di he, he died. And, um, yeah, so that was my first experience when it, it was, I was semi an adult in mm -hmm. my late twenties, right, right. you know, we, we would be going hiking and rock climbing and suddenly you have cancer. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, it's. It was this sort of weird um, alternative world, to tell you the truth. Was it sort of like a wake-up call? Um, a wake-up call for me, I think it was, it was, it was a slap in the face um, mm. that, that this could be me. Um, and... You know, there's so many things that I felt like I was wasting my time doing as a 28 year old. And 
when I found out when he died, it was just like, even the good people die young. And, and even you don't have to be elderly. It just gave me, even though I knew that people die, I, it was just this front row seat. Um, and it shook me to my core. Um, and it awakening awake, awoke something inside me that, that I can't really describe. Um, you know, I started doing a lot less, um, you know, what people would think as normal things like watching TV and, um, but just found my peace in nature and tried to have adventures. And if I was going to die, I was going to at least live well. Were you involved in his care? Um, in a, yes, in a way we dated, um, and he got into the FBI and when he found out he had cancer, um, he, he just, he didn't tell me. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so it's really funny because I just came back from visiting his parents a couple of weeks ago. And, and so he kept that from me trying to protect me. And so when I was, when I found out I was at a wedding in Wilmington and we're, we were, I was having a conversation with a stranger and um, a couple of things connected and, and found out that he had died of cancer and really just reached out to his parents to say, oh my gosh, what, what was going on? And um, it became really a, a relationship. He died May 7th, 2000. And I'm, I'm really still close to his parents. So it's 23 years later um, that we're still talking about Rob and really trying to educate people about how to prepare for um, end of life, but also live, live well too. Yeah. Well, I mean, thanks for that wonderful introduction. Uh, first of all, and second of all, it's interesting that you had that experience of kind of watching a young person go through, you know, a, a protracted death because usually when we, when we think of young people dying, it's from something that is quick and unexpected, whether it's an accident or trauma, an overdose these days or, or what have you. Uh, and did that experience solely take you to hospice or what were you doing before you went to hospice and kind of how was that bridge? What, what did that bridge look yeah, like? Yeah, so, you know, I was in actually Raleigh. Um, just got back from New York and was in Raleigh and we dated and he was a Garner police officer and we dated for a little over a year. And when he got into the FBI, I came down to Wilmington to, to work in the, in the entertainment field. And we sort of parted then. And, and Mm. then about 18 months um, went by and he died, but I only, I found out about three years after he died. So I wasn't a part of his care, but um, when I reached out to his mom, um, because I was so unaware, I had moved. um, And so when I found out, I just reached out and got the story of of what was happening. And I think within several months, I was on a plane going to see his parents. Um, And, you know, when you walk into you know, the house where a guy you dated and there's pictures of you on the wall with a them together him and you together and you know he still has the car you date the parents still have the car you dated in and it's just 
it was really a surreal experience. And I think he was trying to protect me. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, it was just a very confusing time. And what happened was when, when that all happened, I had already been working with hospice for a couple of years. So it was sort of this, I ended up right where I was supposed to be sort of thing. So um, what what was it that made you take the leap from entertainment to hospice if this kind of happened after the fact? Yeah. So basically, um, I did, I had a friend of mine um, in high school that once we graduated, he, he got bone cancer. Oh. And, and so that was the friend that sort of was, um, had passed away about it two years ago. And so when I was on, um, when I was waiting to see if I was going to be working with Dawson's Creek, I normally just, I just went to the hospice organization. My grandmother had um, them in with breast cancer and she had, she had recently died. And so it was just a way for me to give back and volunteer. Um, But what I, what it ended up happening is they need, they were a small nonprofit back in the day and they ended up hiring me and I got to tell the stories of, and listen to the stories of people who are facing end of life and get that perspective of, you know, some of their regrets that changed the direction of my life and some of the, um, some of the ways they lived their life that they felt really good about. Um, so I ended up really becoming sort of a, a reporter and a writer for those individuals facing end of life. And they really, they had, they know, you know, the hospice patients, they never taught me how, a lot about death and dying they really taught me about living and how to live sure well and you mentioned confusion around that time of rob's passing do you think you've since found clarity and do you think that if you have maybe you haven't but if you have do you think that came through your hospice work you know i i think the only thing that really truly bothers me about rob's death is he was such a good hearted person. Um, and I don't think I would have been, you know, landed myself in an RV and going state to state without his sort of influence in my life. He was an outdoorsman. He loved to rock climb. Um, have I, have I dealt with his death? Absolutely. Um, you know, but it's still, hard like on may 7th when he died i mean his birthday is coming up june 2nd and his dad has the same birthday and it's it's those things that when you're with his parents um you still see the rawness of grief Mm -hmm. um because that that's never going to go away you just i think you just learn how to carry it better almost like a like a backpack of rocks you know if you're if you're carrying a backpack full of rocks over time it just becomes easier to carry um yeah there's a there's an analogy that i like um in like the mindfulness world of for any emotion and of course grief is a great example because it carries so many other emotions with it but instead of holding a trash can with your arm extended it's much easier to hold it at your side but i think i'm going to steal your analogy of a backpack of rocks because that's great that's great yeah, it's it's still there. Um, it just has, it just is easier to carry now. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's made me very much aware that 
that we're all going to face end of life and our parents are going to, my parents are going to face end of life. And it's just made me a little bit hypersensitive about, Hey, you know, be aware and take advantage of what you have and, and say what you need to say, because we're not guaranteed. What was it like entering hospice from like a non-medical background? I, that's weird like unique yeah exactly yeah. i imagine it was, it was weird. very weird <laughs> you know because um but yet i felt like i was the bridge because there were hospice in the medical community you know we talk such different language mm-hmm. and and yet i was coming in and was like so naive to i didn't realize doctors had attitudes i just thought they were there to help and 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 I remember one time when I was working with hospice, I, my boss sent me over to the hospital and was like, you look, you know, everybody's, a lot of nurses are out with the flu. Can you just go talk to this family about our services? I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, so when I went over there, um, the lady, she was just like, you know, um, re- she was really sad. And I think they had told her that she, her mom most likely was dying but not in those terms. Um, and I just sat down and I started to be like, well, we can do this and we can do that. And she just started crying. And, and I was like, holy crap, you know, she didn't give a rat's butt about what we can do for her. And I just stopped. And I said, hey, I hear your mom is sick and she's not doing well. Mm-hmm. What is the most important thing moving forward? Do you feel that we need to do? And she goes, I want my mom to die at home. And I said, I think I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. And it had, it had nothing to do with medical. You know, it had, it, it was just a human being trying, instead of trying to tell someone something that they are not capable of hearing. I just asked, what is the most important thing moving forward? And when she said she wanted to take her mom home, I went and found the doctor and, and I was like, look, you know, she wants to take her mom home. And, and of course, me being naive with the medical field, um, the doctor was like, well, she's still, she's too unstable to move, to go home. And so I was turning it away from the doctor and I, and I was like, wait a minute. So I turned back to the doctor and said, look, you know, I'm new, um, aren't all dying patients unstable right, you know and i just right. had this this sort of inquisitiveness and not that i was challenging anyone but dude you know if people are on the verge of dying they're all going to be unstable and how can we make this happen well that that and, answer to me like that he's he missed the forest for the trees because <laughs> if the patient and the family are ready to go ready to die then it doesn't disability piece doesn't matter just try to meet them where they want to be yeah yeah and you know that the great thing about this physician is um he ended up becoming a board member but that story i he i was after him like look can't we do something right and so i said can come talk to the the family member and I mean he was an oncologist and he was just looking at me like up and down like "Uh, are you serious and I but I was so naive that I only heard what the the daughter wanted and and he ended he ended up coming 
and and sitting down with the the family member and the daughter looked at him and says is my mom dying and and he looked down and came back up and said yes she is and and i i think that people need to hear that so they can know that it's time to make some critical decisions that hopefully have already been made absolutely And, and he he said to her he goes look she is unstable you know, are you okay with her dying in the ambulance as we get her home? And the daughter was like, absolutely. And of course, you know, I was like, can she ride with her in case she does die? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the doctor's looking at me like, Lord, I'm going to beat you. Um, (laughs) And so I ended up walking back with the physician and he goes, look, I, he just kind of chuckled because he knew he wasn't going to win with me. And um, he goes, you know what? You're one hell of a hospice nurse. And I'm like, oh, I'm not the hospice nurse. I'm just the volunteer program manager. And he's just like, what? Wow. And, you know, and he, we, we had this 17 year relationship of that first, that first encounter because, and he did come back. He goes, you know, sometimes that I get on this rut and I just see what we need to do as oncologists and I don't see the bigger picture. I was and just going to say that, that oncologists, yeah, oncologists, oncologists are particularly avoidant of talking about the end of life, which is counterintuitive. Yeah. And the best oncologists are the ones that weave hospice into their practice without any issues, but they're few and far between. Yeah. And, you know, and I've had a lot of my friends who are now, I mean, one of my friends is a um, ICU doctor, but she's a palliative care doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's, there's certain things that you, you need to address and they, gosh, you hope they can be addressed before the ICU. And, um, but sometimes they're not. And right. I, I ended up when, when, uh, when that patient did go home, um, she, I remember, uh, cause I drove the, and this sounds so back in 1990. Nine. I didn't know any better. I didn't know I was not supposed to like drive someone's car home because she was in the ambulance driving with her mom. But I did it. It was just like, you know, I don't care about policies and procedures, but I do. But I, there's some things that should come first. So I drove the, the lady's car home, met our hospice nurse. And I remember her mom saying, you know, can I have a hot chocolate now? You know, and and because we, they were so restrictive with her because she was a diabetic and she couldn't have anything sweet. And you know, and, and here she's living her out her last days, but she ended up spending about two weeks in her home that she's been in 75 years. And as soon as I heard she had passed away, I went and found, I uh, went to Starbucks um, and got a hot chocolate and I found doctor, uh, the doctor that, that I was working with and mm-hmm. gave him the hot chocolate. And I said, look, I want to know, I want you to know what you did. And she was surrounded by family and friends and she she died peacefully um and i i do i do sometimes feel that physicians the if you try to help them see the whole story um but i also think that many physicians have the whole story and they they have addressed it with families and tried to bring in hospice and palliative care, but they families are not going to have anything to do with it. Right. And I and I and who knows? Somebody might have talked to this lady about hospice and palliative care. Um, but when you come into a room and you shake someone's hand, you say, "I'm from hospice," you're like, 
what are you doing here? You know, and it's the first time someone's heard that word. And instead of just having, being a human being and just sitting down that says, this sucks. Yeah. This sucks. Yeah. No, this what, really what, sucks. And I think the point that you might be trying to make is that physicians, I, I, as a physician, I know, I know there are many, many, many physicians that can be better about having this conversation. Um, but it is important for anybody at any point to just bring this up. And it's not about getting an answer or decision in that moment. But like you said, somebody might have brought that up to them three months, six months, a year before they met you. But because they had been thinking about it, had the time to, to dwell on it, to consider everything, that when you brought it up or when you were involved, they were prepared. Right. So it's just all about, it's all about bringing it up at some point. And the goal of this podcast and your work sounds like to just keep this in the forefront of people's minds so that people have some say in how they live their life and how their life ends. And you're, you're touching all over, you know, the, the cracks in the system in many different ways. And it's, I mean, it's just really disheartening that it's even falling apart on the hospice end of the world because oh, if, we, yeah. if we don't have good end of life care, we, we don't have any care ultimately. Yeah. And that's, I think that's why, you know, after the tour and COVID, you know, I'm pursuing my PhD because I just, I, I do believe that hospices are doing the best they can, but I think they're over-regulated and they're mm -hmm. under reimbursed. And, you know, you're, you're trying to make hospice organizations act like home health. And it's a different thing. You right. can't, you know, you're asking a hospice nurse about freaking productivity and they've got a family in crisis mode because they just were told that their parent was dying and you can't create productivity around human chaos. <laughs> I mean, um, billing for productivity in an end of life situation makes no sense at all. Exactly. Or holding those clinicians to a productivity. Now, you know, it is, and this is where it's, it is confusing. You know, people think end of life is a business and yes, they're, they have to have the doors open. You want to pay people, you know, uh, an aggressive salary. So they, they stay, but I feel like the, the worst thing that hospice organizations have done is totally driven clinicians away from this field because of just go, 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 go. And the compassion fatigue that these individuals have experienced. And so for pursuing my PhD, I, I, I want to create a new hospice. You know, it's like we, we've got to change how we, we look not only at our patients and families, but at our staff because we're killing them. Well, we've, you know, we've got we've when, got to, we've got to change the system because the yep. insur the insurers control everything, and that's I mean, you, you want to talk about driving people away from fields like yeah you've seen that because you've been in hospice but the entire medical structure is in rapid decay. It is. I mean, people. There's physicians now that are doing um, concierge service, not even billing. Hey, pay me a monthly fee. I'm going to be your physician. And I, and they're not even billing Medicare, right. med whatever. Yeah. And, and what scares me about that and it makes me happy in the same sense is that those who can afford healthcare are going to get 
what they want. And right. those who can't is going to be in a system that is almost like putting them in a, like a, a, a will. A second tier. Yeah. 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 It's just, and it's, they're going to, it's so disappointing. And, and I just feel like everyone loses. And, and that's where, what I go back to when I call an intersection with no stop signs, we're just continually running into each other and, and it becomes this catastrophe and no one's talking to one another. And, you know, you've got, you've got a specialist and, and I've even started recognizing them. Like I have a primary doctor who is a PA and, and I said to him, I said, look, I want you to be my guy. And I, I want to come to you first when I have a, a dermatologist or whatever issue. I want you to see it. And can we treat it without, you know, going to see a specialist? Because if, if, you, if I do go, I want you to make that referral because I want at least one practitioner that knows everything about me. Right. I, and and we, we just make these appointments and, and, you know, this physician doesn't know that I've had a skin cancer removed and this physician doesn't know that I'm going to uh, a pulmonologist for COPD. And it just becomes this cluster um, that no one knows exactly what's going on with the patient except the patient. Right. The patient doesn't know how to communicate because they don't even realize they're in the driver's seat. What and you, they what are. are what are you getting your PhD in? Like what field? Social what... work. Okay. And tell, tell me more about how that's going and kind of what yeah. your layout is for, for getting well, out. I'm, I'm hoping by the time I finish that I'll still have this much passion. Um, and I won't want to just be a professor for two days a week. And, and that's, I, I pray. Because I really do believe that if there is one aspect of healthcare that we should look at socializing because we're already got Medicare, which is, is a semi-socialized system um, is end of life. Mm-hmm. And this is a way that, Hey, if you are now receiving Medicare, then we are asking you to do advanced care planning and it's a requirement for you to receive the Medicare benefits. We've got to, put certain things in place so that like stop signs like okay so you don't you gotta even if you want everything then we want to know that but but i also feel like people when they are educated um and they know that hey you know we can do everything and keep you alive but do you really want to be on artificial um life in a nursing home for the rest of your life and who's paying for that yeah or or in a a hospital even do you want to be on a a hospital well in the hospitals have gotten really good about you know especially with the drg man after a while they're just like you got to get out you got to get out um and and there's rare occasion that that they'll they'll let someone um linger in the hospital but usually um, if it's months at a time, I've seen them go to rehabs and, but I, I just feel like there's a better way to educate people that about, I'm not sure you know exactly what you're talking about and how do we educate people? Because even with hospice, you know, don't, I want to feed my mom. Well, let me, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, if you feed somebody 
and their system is closing down and their digestion system is, is, is shutting down and they, you are forcing them to eat, then it's very painful because it's shutting down and you're making it work. Yeah. And, and so it's not that, first of all, that she needs even food. Right. I mean, that's the dying process is, you know, it, you're going to be seeing her sleep a little bit more or not eat as much. And, and how do we educate people to recognize the signs? But we are also human beings that we sometimes will see the signs and, and not fully process what this means. Yeah. Let me jump back to the advanced care planning conversation for a moment. Sure. So, um, just, I just think this might be a, a good time to talk about this more for the audience, for them to consider this kind of stuff. So who did you pick as your healthcare power of attorney? How did you pick them? And kind of what did that conversation look like when you brought it to their attention? Sure. So this is a, a really interesting story. Um, I, I redid my advanced care planning because when I became a driver in an RV, a 29-foot RV driving across the country, I felt like I needed certain documents in um, on me and my parents needed them. And so I asked my mother um, to be my healthcare power of attorney and then my best friend from high school to be the second. Mm-hmm. And, and we had this, they, she, my best friend came over and we talked about everything that I wanted. And my mom walked my best friend out to her car when she was leaving and my dad, who I am very close to, I extremely close. Um, he's just, he's looked at me and he's like, why didn't you pick me? Mm. And I said, okay, dad. I said, I am in Nebraska. The RV had crashed and I'm on life support. What would you do? And he goes, well, I would want to keep you on life support until I got you back here. And, but I don't, I said, dad, you couldn't, you could not take life from me. I know you can't. Mm-hmm. And you, you just couldn't, you, you would not let me off those machines. Um, and I need someone to speak as me and not for me, but as me that look, if my brain is dead, do not let me live. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do not. And and so even that whole scenario was, it's hard because there really is nothing that my mom or best friend have anything to decide about. They know that, you know, there's certain things that when it starts occurring, um, that, hey, this is, this is what I want. Um, now, the most form, which is opening a lot of doors for individuals who have chronic disease or... Um, a, a kind of a life limiting um, situation that you could say, yeah, give me antibiotics for two weeks, but if it's not working, then no, I want to stop. And so most, the most forms and post or post as some of the nation is, it allows the, to have a bigger conversation than just a DNR form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in, and so when I mentioned some of this, even in, in Cincinnati, where I just talked about advanced care planning, People are like, what's that form? And, and do I need that form? And I said, you know, this is where if you are healthy and you are 
even using a walker in this assisted living or this independent living and you fall down and your heart stops, you do not, you want people to resuscitate you. You don't, even if you're 90, you know, you could, somebody, just like the football player, he was resuscitated, going to play football next year. You know, it's, can we get you back to what you want? But if you have cancer or COPD and you have been like struggling with that chronic illness and you fall down, you've got to have that information on you because the rescue squads are going to revive you and stabilize you. And I think, you know, we've gotten, what bothers me about advanced care planning is that we've gotten so um, tech savvy in the world, but yet people are still, we still have not figured out how to make advanced care planning a part of uh, paperless, like part of my phone or how do I, how do I make it so that papers are with me always and that information's with me? Um, so I have an not... idea for that, that yeah, I tell haven't me. executed or really done anything with because I was in a pulmonary fellowship during COVID and had planned on doing this during fellowship, but then I left. Um, but I think we should come up with a system where you can have your code status on your driver's license. Cause if you can be, an organ donor decided at the driver's license office or the DMV, why can't you do that with your code status? I, um, you and I need to take on the fight because when you're 16 and get your license, you are making an end of life decision. Do you want to be a donor? Yeah. Why couldn't we just add, Hey, do you have a healthcare power of attorney? Can I plug it in while you get your license? And that way, when that police officer or any first responder comes up, you can have your healthcare power of attorney right in that that documentation, hooked to your license, and boom. Exactly. But do you know that it is going to this is it is going to be an act of Congress to do that? And I I don't know how to even begin. First, and another thing, we've got to stop calling these advanced directives different things based on a different your different states can we just agree to call it one thing because snowbirds from philadelphia are have the proxy but they live half the year in florida where they're now agents it's really confusing and when you take someone who's not in the system and and start talking about this stuff they're just like holy crap and then and then this is the scary part is in and I hate to even say this, but it is the truth. Those who even have advanced directives, are they really truly implemented when they need them in the hospital? Right. Well, and that's where, you know? that's where the healthcare power of attorney is arguably the most important piece. But I mean, at least having if some... a family. Yeah. But you know, you as a physician, if you're in that hospital and the healthcare power of attorney is there, and the children, and they're arguing in the lobby. What is, what do usually people say? Well, let me know. That's, I mean, and that's the result of living in a litigious society. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and exactly. it's a huge problem where families don't have these conversations, and like you said, siblings, cousins, whatever. And they're doing it because they feel guilty, and they weren't there, and there's just a lot of humanness in these instead of just i instead of the doctor saying she has a healthcare power of attorney 
I've talked to them prior to this and we are implementing what the healthcare power of attorney. And because what physicians, the family could sue the physician. Exactly. But they, they would lose though. But it, it's like people don't want to engage in that because it's, it's a mess. Well, cause but, I mean, as a physician, if you get sued, even if you win the case, you lost a lot of your life, a lot of your peace of mind. Like, like there is no winning a case. Right. Right. So, yeah. It's, it's a complete disaster. Um, but I think like in, back to the DMV project, just starting with a pilot, whether, I mean, it would probably need to be a state. I don't know if you could do it on a city or county level. Um, but it. <sighs> I don't think you'd need to involve national Congress to begin with. It would take, no. it, would, it would definitely take like, you know, probably city board or city council or something on that level to be like, we're going to try this and we're going to compare our, our, you know, what am I trying to say here? Um, like in the field responses, our County versus the next County over and see if that reduces hospitalizations or, ICU stays, or you'd have to find a way to turn these numbers into some sort of monetization, unfortunately, but that's just yeah, the world absolutely. we live in. Yeah. 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 But you, what state do you live in? I'm in North Carolina. I'm just up the oh, road you from are? you. Yeah. I, oh. I um, went to UNC Wilmington and I was emailing a few of my uh, professors, instructors about this podcast. And one of them sent me your contact. So that's how I got your information. Oh, I gotcha. I yeah. gotcha. Um, well, if where, where do you live right now? I'm in the triangle area. Okay. Well, if you ever want to work on, on doing this, I, I would love, I would love to see something like this happen. It just is, it's going to be monotonous and it's, it's going to be pulling teeth and, and, you know, I don't know how the, I, I would start with the, um, the donor. I'm like, how the heck did you guys get it? on the mm. license you that's know a good, that's like, a good idea yeah you know it's like tell me what you did because we could have another little emblem that that just says hey they have a healthcare power of attorney well so just to play devil's advocate for a second the transplant people might lobby against something like this because if it resulted in you know 10 20 30 40 percent increase in do not resuscitate how many organs would they lose Mm, yeah so i don't know it could be interesting but um on the other hand they might be good to talk about how that process was implemented because i i don't know i've lived in other states and gotten driver's licenses in other states but i can't remember if they asked if i was an organ donor anywhere else is that a nationwide thing do you know yeah it is a national thing okay it is a national thing i even thought you know right now people's phones are so hooked to them you know, is there a way that first responders could get to the phone and put like a first responder code in and bring up the healthcare power of attorney? Um, I don't know. It, you know, it's because Apple has this, you know, you can put in certain things like that, but you, and I believe you can, you don't have to put in a code, but there, it's just, I would love to, to know certain things because some people are like i'm gonna get a tattoo do not resuscitate you know that doesn't mean can, anything you, yeah you can get it but it's yep. not gonna work yeah you, know, you will be resuscitated yep you know and it's that's that's what is interesting 
about it is how do we go about doing something like this? And good Lord, I would love this to be my thesis is how do we get advanced directives on the license? Yeah, that would be, I mean, yeah, you are welcome to take this and run with it. And if I can help you or whatever, like, I think it'd be a cool project to, to see what, where it went. And you're right. You know, why not pilot it in, especially in um, a County that is not so metropolitan, you know, it, it could, I don't know, maybe Brunswick County um, is the number one retirement down here, you know, near Wilmington. Right. I mean, why not start with where are the retirees going? Right. Why not start there? Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we have to do something because everyone is losing right now. Yeah. Um, and and we're paying for things um, in the last six months of life that are just futile care. Well, and back to the payer thing, like I'm at this point in my life, after seeing the spectrum of healthcare and the rapid decay of the system, like it's very obvious we need a one payer system, but I I still think there should be, it shouldn't be true socialized medicine. Like it shouldn't be that, like you just go to the government for your healthcare. That should be the yeah. payer. That should be the payer, but you can still allow the systems to exist so there's still like this sense of choice or free market competition so that, you know, it doesn't become like the VA for everyone, which is a whole different right. conversation. Right. And I, I, I do see your point, um, you know, but again, it's when you have a physician, a fee for service, you know, it does, you, there's no way to accept the, like the oath that the physicians take. Like I've seen oncologists, who are giving chemotherapy to practically dead people. Are literally, they doing that? Literally. Yeah, because yeah. Are, are they doing that because they can't have the hard conversation? They don't want to take hope away? Yeah. Or are they doing that to Bill? You know, I mean, and as long I, I as we... I can't imagine it's for, it's, it's for the sake of billing because especially now, there are so many people that have cancer, unfortunately, that mm -hmm. like keeping someone alive or... I mean, that's not even the right term, but keeping somebody on oncology treatment when it's obviously outserved their purpose, like that can't be for pay. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and I think what really scares me too is, is that we've become a society that, oh, you want to do this? We, you, you know, we're, we're just letting people do whatever they feel is right for them. And I think we're getting away from sometimes people don't know what they don't know exactly yeah exactly yeah. no i i've been saying this for a couple of years now is that we've gone so far in the way of patient autonomy that it's to the point of it being detrimental and that these aren't these aren't consensual conversations when someone is making these decisions when they don't have the ability or information to make these decisions it's just this illusion of autonomy Whereas we need to swing a little bit back more towards the paternalism side of the scale so that healthcare providers or informed people in some capacity are, are more, not dictating, but making it very clear what the better versus worse choices are. Yeah, like HIPAA. I don't want my advanced directives to be a part of HIPAA. I want everyone to know this is what my advanced directives are. And it's like, I think sometimes the patient privacy 
has really crippled us when to communicate with other physicians, to collaborate with other physicians. It's just this whole, it's complicated, the communication aspect. I don't, I don't know if that's HIPAA so much as it is the systems protecting their data. So Maybe, you're right, yeah, that's a because, good point. Because all of the value in medical systems is the medical data, which is the patient data. So they're gonna make it extremely difficult for physicians to request records from outside hospitals and outside systems. Um, and I, I, honestly, I think that's only gotten worse. Like I remember being an intern or early resident and it was pretty quick to get records, you know, just call and say, Hey, medical records, can you fax me this? I need this as patients in the hospital, whatever. But that seems like a practice that's gone way out of favor. And the thing that's pseudo replaced that is one of the electronic medical records called Epic which okay. don't don't let anybody lie to you all electronic medical records are are garbage like they're just for pay mm-hmm. they're just for pay they're like they all are terrible um but epic is one of the more popular ones and you can see like it's almost like a preview of records if someone else got care at a different system that uses epic it doesn't fully communicate so i can't get the full scoop but um that's like kind of been the pseudo replacement for getting actual transfer of records because I don't think systems want to share their data. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I hear you. And get this, and this is what the whole system is doing They're Like I saw in hospice there, we're complicating the, the documentation aspect of it and physicians and clinic clinicians are duplicating and documenting and, three different same information three different places and spending so much on documentation to get to that billing that right. they they have no time to be in front of the person that they're trying to treat yep um and and that's where it's sad because i know people who got into this field whether it's a physician or a nurse, they got in the field to take care of patients, right? Not to freaking deal with productivity and documentation. And just to be, and, just to be data collectors, essentially. That's yeah, all. Exactly. That's all. That's all it is. And yeah. and that and it forces people like yourself to be like, look, am I going to be able to survive in this system, or do I need to do something that's going to give me work life balance? Exactly. You know, it's it, and it's hard. Um, and it, you see people that were born to do this, to, to be in the hospital, to be hospice nurses, to be hospice social workers, and they are leaving the field because they, the field is asking too much from them as a well, human being to operate. Well, it's, 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 it's a dehumanizing system is what it is. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't, I don't know all the answers. And, and I know that, you know, but I, I really feel that if, if, if take hospice, I mean, if Dame Cicely Saunders, the, the individual that created this hospice movement, she did it to meet patients and families where they were when they were facing end of life. And we come over to a capitalist society like America, and it's like now we're asking patients and families to conform to a reimbursement stream. Mm. And, you know, death doulas are reclaiming some of this because they're not being considered. But when the government, when you're being paid by the government, they're going to tell you how to do it. 
And, and that's the thing. I don't think the government is a, is in a position that they know what they're talking about and they don't see it implemented. Just like one of the things that happened while I was with hospice, um, what is it? Uh, it, it was the billing for uh, failure to thrive was taken away. So mm. a 97 year old who has no chronic conditions and no terminal diagnosis could not get hospice care because what? she's just, yeah. Cause she's just starting not to, to eat. And, you know, because there's no billing code for someone who is failure to thrive. They took it away. Mm. And that's the thing. It's like, you've got to have a diagnosis. You've got to have, yeah. this. you've got to, you've you, got to, you've got to put the patient into a data collection. Yeah. And yeah. my thing is if you have a chronic illness or you're, or 90 years and above, then if you want hospice for the rest of your life, why would we not keep them out of that box where people are sick? Yes, absolutely. And it's, yeah, no, you're speaking to the choir on this. It's just, uh, it's just so frustrating. It's the, the double negative here that actually does not lead to a positive. It's just all negative is if the government's willing to pay for an intensive care stay and intubation, dialysis, all of this stuff, why would they fight hospice, which is probably 95% cheaper and better for the patient and the family? Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, people now, because they've regulated hospice so much that we, our nurses have to go in and be like, okay, you can't do this. You can't do that. And I, if, if the hospice nurse came in and I'm a fan of hospice, then if nurse, and if I was dying and a hospice nurse was like, you can't do this, I'd be like, get the hell out. Right. And, and I think that is there a reimbursement that we give this money to the caregivers or the patient and say, okay, what do you want to do with it? Do you want mm. in-home help? Do you want hospice? Do you want someone, you know, maybe you have all the family members, but you just want a death doula to guide mm -hmm. the family through it. I yeah, mean, but we, the government, uh, we don't do that. We say, here's your choice. And because hospice has been overregulated and it's the only end of life choice, palliative, you know, okay. But, you know, people still are not coming on board with that quick right. enough. It's, right. it's like pre-hospice. Right. Um, exactly. You know, it's, it's like, I don't want to say hospice, so let's get palliative care involved, it, you know? Yes. But, se but seriously, it's like, it's not working. It but, is like it is a lot just of, frustrating. Like that's a good example to, for this next point of calling palliative pre-hospice because yeah. there are, there are so many patients that like, I'm like, this is what's happening. You have X and Y, Z diseases. You've been sick for years. Like, I think you would benefit from hospice or at least considering it, whatever. So I, I'm fortunate to be in a system now that has like a pretty well-established palliative and hospice network, whether that's remote or, you know, brick and mortar visits. And I'll follow up on some of the referrals I make and at least 50% of them end up taking the palliative, like the outpatient palliative instead of hospice, because it's like, they can't accept that they're actually at that point. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it goes back to one of my favorite words for anything is avoidance. Yeah. And yeah. it's like this whole culture of avoidance of death and it's just fed by instant gratification and this illusion of choice. And it's just, 
we need more conversations like this to prevent yeah we do because even my friend who had a hip replacement and she was going to rehab she goes i'm just having so much pain i'm like you need palliative care she goes i'm not dying i'm like no palliative care is a consultant for symptoms right you're having pain bring them in and they're going to address that and then they're like a consulting service and they go away then, and people don't understand that all of hospice is palliative, but not all palliative is hospice. Exactly. And and so it's very confusing um, for especially, you know, from the grandmother that lives two doors down from me, you know, who thinks hospice is going to kill her because of morphine. Um, right, right. You know, and it, it just, we we don't, we don't really we don't really start educating people that, Hey, you've been dying since you took your first breath. This is, this is never, you're never going to escape death. And 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 it's go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we just, I just, the dream is like getting to the point in the society where we celebrate death. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, this thing is you won't control. Okay. I can't tell you when, right. But you can have control on how and where, right. Most likely. Don't you want control? Yes. Okay. Then let's talk about, hey, where do you, you know, because that's, that's mysterious to me. And I've seen people wait for people and, you know, I, you're going to do that on your own. And that's something mysterious that I can't really, when it happens, I can't control, but where and how, um, you might have as you might have some control, Yeah. you know, and, and this thing is, it's really crazy, is some of these people who are in the hospital and they're like, I want to take my mom home. I can't believe people are not like go, jumping through hoops. Yes. To say, like, yes, thank you. Yes, we can get you home. Um, yeah. So and, I, and yes, I, there's friction. I currently and then work. I, I've, I've seen physicians on the other extreme being like, well, have we done everything we could? She's 87 and she's dying. I Have we done everything we could? I currently work in a virtual hospital model, so you can get inpatient care for like routine hospital issues in your own home. And the number of people that say no, they'd rather stay in the hospital, it would blow your mind. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. So the fact that people aren't going home to die, I don't find that all that surprising in in practicality, yeah. but it is it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's like but 90% of people say they want to die at home in, in their own bed and stuff. And, but yeah, 30% yeah. Oh, actually, do it. And, actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is, gosh, um, I had pneumonia about seven years ago and I went to urgent care and my, uh, my pulse ox was probably 89, 90. Mm. And the doctor's like, um, we might have to send you to the hospital. I'm like, please don't. There are sick people over there. And I don't want to go to the hospital. And she and she got my, you know, pulse ox and my oxygenation up. And and she, she sent me home, but I loved alone. And she goes, I just, I'm going to call you every day. I'm like, okay, I'll answer. But that's the thing is like so many people go to the doctor when an over-the-counter drug can knock it out. Well, you know, I, it's like, I mean, now we're getting into another another pet peeve topic yeah. of, of over-utilization of the emergency department. And just this phrasing of if everything's an emergency, nothing is an emergency. And, That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, and I come from this 
you know, if I'm at your, if I'm at my primary doctor, I have suffered for a week with over the counter drugs and it is not working. And I'm coming in because, you know, if you're really in touch with yourself, you know, your body more than the physician does. Hey, this is what's going on. This is what I need. And even my physician, I called him like, look, I'm getting a sinus infection. She, he goes, don't even come in. I'll send you some medication, uh, pharmacy and let me uh, call me in three days to see if it's working. You know, there with COVID, telemedicine is huge. I yeah. mean, it could, it, it, we don't need to like stuff like that. We don't need to be seen. You well, just but, like, Hey, is, is it working? Cool. And, and we do need to build out the telemedicine infrastructure because we can't build enough hospitals for the impending death of the boomer generation. Um, and virtual medicine saves lots of money because building a new hospital is essentially a billion dollar venture. Like, so yeah, and you know what? You talk to any old old lady or old man in their seventies and eighties, and you tell them, "Do you want to stay in your house?" And that's the thing. That's the model we need to build around. There's so much technology yeah, that they that's could what we're stand doing. on. Yeah, they could stand on a scale and it be uploaded, and you know their weight. And yep. and this is, <laughs> I'm not a physician. But people are like, well, what are the signs of hospice care? I'm just a social worker. And I can say, if someone's falling and you don't know why, and they're losing weight, that and they have a chronic illness, something's going on, period, yep. period. Yep. And the older you are in that situation, the more likely it is that you're dying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we want to, and people want to prolong life, but they only are prolonging death. And, su- and increasing suffering. And when you ask people, what are you scared about dying? They don't talk about, well, I'm not, sca- I'm not, I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of being, you know, suffering. So- and I'm like, yeah, it's like, well, then we're doing everything that, that is increasing that suffering. But I, I guess people get into the emotional state um, and they, they become reactive. And they're making emotional decisions, which if you have not thought about it, an emotional decision is is not a great place to be when it comes right. to, you know, ICU or, you know, ha- healthcare issues, because you're going to most likely say, save my mom. Mm-hmm. And you don't care what that means. You just want the physical body. And unfortunately, to save your mom she's not going to be the same person. Um, and we, we have a hard time letting go. And I, I don't understand it. Um, and don't, don't misunderstand, you know, my, I'm really close to my father and he has leukemia and he has rheumatoid arthritis and he's getting ready to go for a heart ablation and he's got some issues, but I know that if he can't ride his motorcycle or if he can't take his plane, um, up for, you know, a little loop de doop. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't want to live. Right. And and I told him, I said, I will support you a hundred percent. But you have to know, like one day it was affecting his kidney and, he, and his kidneys uh, numbers were going up. And he goes, I'm not going to do the dialysis. And I said, Dad, that's fine. But do you know what that means? If it keeps getting worse, he goes, I'm going to die. I'm like, that's right. As long as you are aware of what the consequences are, because I'm not going to live on dialysis. I'm like, there you go. I 
support you 100%. I wouldn't live on dialysis either. Yeah, great. It's the beginning That's... of the end anyway. Exactly. But I know we've gone from one end to another, but I, I'm just so passionate about just educating people to get them to the point that they can might make decisions based on correct information, not about fear or not knowing what they don't know. Yeah, no, I, I'm really happy that you agreed to do this, this interview podcast conversation, whatever you want to call it. And I'm really encouraged and even inspired right now that there are people like you out there that we can hopefully help people help themselves and avoid suffering as much as possible. You might be interested in palliative care because there's, we need someone who's going to put on the brakes. Um, and, oh, oh and- I am. I am totally interested in palliative care and my nurses at work, like they joke about it when I'm not there that, cause I, yeah. I will talk, I try to talk to everybody about their code status and what their goals of care are Good and all that you. kind of stuff. Yeah. I just, I just and don't you know- think it's important or necessary to do a palliative care fellowship and participate further in this over-credentialization of oh everything. Gosh. Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. And, and you're in that that's the thing is, is we have to be careful because some of these palliative care doctors who are board certified, doctors still do palliative care every day. Exactly. And, and, if, and you you, know, if you're a physician of any stature, of any training of any specialty, you should be practicing palliative on some level every day. Abs- absolutely. Just like hospice, you know, it's, they come in and they tell these nursing homes they're doing it wrong. I'm like, dudes, they've been around a lot longer than hospice. They've been doing end of life a long time. Yeah. Show them a little bit of respect, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Don't don't roll out the red carpet and hear the death of angels coming in and we're going to need pats on the backs. It, they've been doing it. And so um, it's really hard because I do feel like people who are part of this in the life field they've gotten arrogant a little bit about we can we're the only ones who can do it no you're not the caregiver at the bedside of their mother is doing hospice and palliative care right so you know we we've we've got to get rid of the ego well it's just how do we support those people we have to get rid of the medicalization of living and dying like yes medicine is important yes we can do a lot of things with science and technology but medicalizing everything for the sake of billing is it's got to stop. Yeah. Or people, yeah. I mean, that's not going to stop. Let's be honest. But the thing that can stop it or put the brakes on it, like you said, is just making people aware of this and say, Oh, this isn't actually a medical problem. This is, this is just a human problem. Yeah. And, and we can all better serve each other by just talking about this stuff. Well, and another thing is, is when people are going through treatment, talk about hey what could happen because i had a friend who had uh intestinal cancer and very active you know served and he went in and they radiated his intestines and if he knew that his intestines would be a brick and he would have to wear a colostomy he goes i would have never done it and i think that sometimes we need to say okay we can do this but this is what you're going to most likely have you still want to do it that should be the standard of care I tell you, I mean, like when I approach a a goals of care conversation, it's, hey, we can do this X, Y, and Z, but these are the things that are going to happen. And it's, it's sometimes it's a more general conversation of just saying we can do these things, but you need to know that your quality of life is going to be 70 or 50% of what it is now. And that's with 
weeks, months, maybe years of rehab. Yeah. And if you still want to do it after knowing that, then let's do it. But if that makes you say no, then you probably should not do those things. Yeah. And in that your your quality of life, you're active and you're not going to be as active. Or you can go home and be as active as you can. And yeah, you're going to die. We all are. Yeah. But do you want to spend the majority of your later years in a hospital and in dialysis or rehab? Right. No freaking way. Right. Not for me. No. Nope. I don't I don't want to live. Most people um, most people wouldn't if they actually took the time to think about this stuff. It is. It's so true. And and that's it brings us back full circle of how do we how do we get people to talk about it? And because I know that the consumer is in the driver's seat. And I, I'm like, if I can get them to reclaim their voice and get the physicians to meet, if they can meet halfway, then the, and then that's putting up stop signs at this intersection. So what's your plan are, for that? But I mean, telling stories is uh, a great first step, but like, I know we talked about the DMV thing as a possible thesis, but what other things were you thinking about like to, to make this vision happen? That is the the twenty million dollar question. Okay. Is, you know, because my thing is, you know, I'm doing a lot of talks in communities, and but I there's no measurement there. It's like, do you have have you made an impact? I mean, I want I want to walk away and inspire people to plan for end of life, because and and I think that if we can make it sexy, then maybe we can. Because look, here's the paperwork. Yeah, the directives, and here's you got to plan for it, the the planning process. But really, if you design your death, like what kind of music do you want friends to bring you flowers? Then suddenly it becomes a little bit more sexy. Like, oh my mm -hmm. god, I can really, really do end of life my way. Like for instance, people laugh, but I want to have my funeral before I die. Why wouldn't you fly across the United States to see me instead of come and I have a nobody? I want you to, I want, I want to be connected and say goodbye. Did I make a difference? So what does that look and, like? Like, just for example, let's say you're 85 and you've got, um, I don't know, you've got heart failure and you are pretty sure from what your doctor's telling you, you're going to die within the next six months. Like, would you literally set up a party? I would love to, I would set up something that I could, like a funeral, like, you know, come and see me. Do not come to where I'm not at. Come say goodbye to me. I think that's and, and awesome. That's that's I, right? beautiful. Like yeah. People people come across the United States to sit in a church and and you know be with people who knew that person. Why not have a funeral before you actually die? Because this is the thing. When I get to those last days, I don't want to be around too many people. My partner, yes. My if a close group of core friends, five right. or six, yes. Deep, and, deep, and deep telling stories, yeah, telling stories and what a crazy life I lived, and hearing them laugh about me, that would be great. You can't have everyone, mm -hmm. and so I would I would do it. If my doctor said I had a year to live, I would take a month and plan it, and I would feel really most likely okay. I would get some kind of drugs to give me that little pep and i would just i would say hey 
I, my doctor said I was most likely going to die in a year and I'm going to have my funeral and I want everyone to come and we're going to party and we're going to sing and we're going to do whatever we can. And then when I do die, whether it's a year, year and a half or two years, that we had some conversations that were meaningful. Yeah. So you knew this was probably going to be the most, the last time you see me. Yeah, no, that sounds me. like a great idea. And I think, you know, like you said, you can make that sexy and it will help people kind of celebrate their death and be more aware of it. So, yeah, it's like, why can't we get um, college kids before that answer this question? Before I die, what do you want to do? I want to do I want to hike the Appalachian Trail. What are you waiting for? When I was what are you in, waiting for? when I was in seventh grade, my teacher, my English teacher had us write a letter to ourselves. We were like 12 or 13. And it was to write a letter to yourself when you're 25. And she followed through. And I got that letter either my first or second year of medical school. And it was surprising how accurate I knew myself as a 13-year-old. But to your point, like, you could do that with death, too. You could do that with, yeah. you know, as a college kid, dear, you know, dear Kimberly, I don't know when you're going to die. But these are the things I'd like you to achieve or accomplish by x y and z checkpoints in your life and you know you could set it up to live a more fulfilling life in that way yeah and that's the thing is you know and then we're not even talking social media what people waste time with and it's such you know, a waste of time it is such a bastardization you know, of it, people's it's, lives you wanna, it's talk, it's fake news because yeah you can people are posting all these happy pictures and then you know that they're divorcing you know it's like it, it, people want you to see this fake world that they're not alone and yet they're the loneliest person out there. Exactly. And, and it just, it keeps you from actually connecting with yourself and your environment and deepening relationships that you already have. It's such a bastardization of human, of humanism. Like, and that, it goes, is this part of that process? How do we get people to really get in touch with who they are? Exactly. Instead of numbing out to television, numbing out to this or numbing out to that, or, you know, it, it's a world that, you know, all these shootings, mental health. And I'm thinking, well, my generation raised these kids and I, my parents raised me. If I did something wrong, they spanked me. I mean, I, I was scared of my parents sometimes, but I knew they loved me. It's like, where have we gone wrong? Where, where someone's going to pick up a gun? And just shoot in a crowd. Right. Where have we gone wrong? Yeah. Yeah. No, technology has clearly expedited a lot of issues. But then then again, our government, I mean, I don't know. There's so many different things I want to say in so many different directions to go. But I, I think the easiest way to sum it up right now is that what no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, and this is not a political comment, but COVID was the most obvious obvious example for everybody that your government is not coming to save you and socialization is very important for the human i mean you know probably the most important thing besides the basics of sleeping and eating and moving are your social networks absolutely your real life social connections not social media no you're yeah the connections with people in your life Absolutely. I totally yeah. agree with you. And and that's where, you know, do we start there? Because so many people plug the 
what needs to happen internally with other people. And I don't mean to be so like mental health, but it is, it is a, 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 an intersection with no stop signs. And I do believe it affects decisions going into the hospital. We, we feel like we are owed and we deserve everything with, which sometimes is not really truly what we want. Well, and it's also not true at all. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, conversation. And, you know, the only thing that I knew what to do next, um, especially is, is I needed to go back to school because there's, there's got to be work on policies and, unfortunately you know none of these things will be behind my name because I just don't like to put crap behind my name I'm just a human being and but sometimes when you're trying to change things you need that credentialing to say look we are we're doing we're doing something that is destructive and it and it's hurting people and I do believe that we are prolonging death and we're not having direct conversations. And I think it stems from a lot of the things that we discussed. Absolutely. Um, you know, it really does. Um, yeah. And it's scary, but, but I don't, I still have hope. I, I really do. It's, it's, I mean, the first step is the scariest and, and everything after that, it gets easier. And that's something that people just need to realize with talking about their own death and mortality is, it, it sounds like it's a scary concept from afar, but once you get past the introduction, it's not scary. It actually, it actually makes you feel more fulfilled. Yeah. Hey, have you ever heard of the death deck? The death deck? Yeah. No. It's uh, a social, a hospice social worker and a comedian in Los Angeles created the death deck. And, you know, it's a game that you can sit around and some of the questions, like if you could come back to life, what actress would you want to sleep with? <laughs> then it has, then it has the very next question going to be, Hey, if you're dying and you're in the hospital, what would you do? And it really brings these conversations. And, and this is what's the crazy thing. There are a lot of artists, and a lot of individuals um, out there who are doing something to bring a little bit more awareness of, hey, have you planned? Have you talked about this? Mm -hmm. And and I, I should send you a couple of links. Please, um, yeah. Because it is just an amazing, especially with you being a physician um, and you have a new way of, of looking at it because you're young and you're just getting into this. And sometimes it's easy to, you know, get into and, and form um, your practice around what older physicians are telling you. But you seem to have this, I don't know, this really new way to see things. And you being a physician, um, God, I would love for you to meet some of the physicians that I know, like Jessica Zeter, she wrote the book Extreme Measures. And I interviewed her and I said, why did you name your book Extreme Measures? And she said, because it, what I had to do to be at the bedside of the dying is I had to do extremely the opposite of what I learned in medical school. school. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and that's why it's extreme measures is because I cannot be the doctor I was trained to be at the bedside of the dying. And yeah. how do we change that? Yeah, no, that's, I've talked about that on a couple episodes of this podcast. Um, and one of the episodes is with Ethan Weiss. He's, 
an awesome person, awesome doctor, all that kind of good stuff. And he, he goes into a lot of detail about his experience as a resident and, and how it took him his, you know, 20 years, 30 years of a practicing cardiologist to kind of unlearn the training of, well, we can do everything. We can do everything. And, and then that's kind of one of my broader questions to, to everybody uh, is how do we better train physicians to have the difficult conversation? Because it shouldn't be that difficult, especially for physicians. It, it should be a, a daily, a daily happening. Um, so I'll definitely check that out. And yeah. And, 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 the, and it's about role modeling. It's, it's about putting them in situations in medical school that in, in role playing and, and really, and it's almost, I, I wish, and you know, how do we simulate a physician who can follow a patient and, and kind of advise them about some decisions and then ultimately see where that patient ends up? Um, because you've got to see it, you got to feel it, you got to experience it. Um, and, and I think that's the only way to really stop the, the head on collisions. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I, but I, anytime, anytime, Hey, I would love I, my family. There's some family members in Raleigh, but I, we should have a drink one, one night and just, I would love to continue this conversation because it's uh it's a really important one and you're in it right now and you know i know i'm in school and i'm kind of not doing a lot um because it's taken everything i have just to focus on um, getting through school but i i have this passion that i just want to radically change how people face end of life and if i just do it one person at a time then i'm going to do it but i just i do think it's a better way and how do we get everyone on board to just say hey you know, you're, we're all dying. Yeah. How are you going to do it? Yeah. No, I, I greatly appreciate your time and this awesome conversation. I, I hope we can collaborate in a, in a more impactful way. And I, I'm definitely interested in doing that. And yeah, let's connect. Awesome. School and uh, at some point and you'll be fine. So just remember <laughs> that. Well, thanks. And, and again, let's keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Bye. The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Please share this with at least three people. Thanks for listening.